Well, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. I have for you today a sermon that is going to be very specific in advice. Like I'm going to give you a tool today for your toolbox of life that you can take from here and use for a better life. Amen? Amen. And so it's kind of like, and I I like this genre, but it's kind of like today's sermon. I'm going to give you like specific advice, like in the genre of a self-help kind of genre. And I like the self-help kind of genre. I love learning about leadership and a stronger marriage and how to spend your money better. And I don't know, what other things, just kicking habits and doing better in life. Like I love this type of genre. And so today, this sermon is going to be kind of like a self-help talk. But at the end of that, this talk today, I'm going to turn it on its head and say, well, it's not really like that because of this reason. So hang on, stay with me through this sermon, and I'll give you a great piece of advice that actually works. Because in this genre of self-help, sometimes usually what happens is like someone will come out with the book. It's like, here's the best technique there is for like kicking a bad habit, right? So this book will come out, it'll make a bestseller list and everybody will read it, everybody will be talking about it. And then a couple months down the line, someone else will come out with the book critiquing that book, saying that's the worst idea ever. If you do this, you'll be worst off. And there is usually in this world of like self-help genre, debates that happen over which techniques are the best. I wish someone really just knew the best technique. Or what'll happen sometimes is someone will write a book and then disqualify themselves. And so I read a book earlier this year. Uh, It's in my habit to, uh, I like to listen to books on audio. Anybody else a book? Yes, I see those hands. Yes, yes. Uh, I am a fan of just listening to books. And I I get through quite a few books. Uh, One of my favorite places to listen to books is in the car. And so I still have a CD player in my car. Anybody else have a CD? A real live, like four of you, five, six, I see. So I have a CD player in my vehicle. So I go to the library, a real library, and, and it's been closed during COVID. So in the Manitou library, you go up and you, there's a doorbell, you ring the doorbell, and now it's changed. But a couple months ago, you ring the doorbell, the librarian comes. And so I would ask them, can you go get for me some books on CD? And they're like, what? Like, just go pick out some books? It's like, yes, just go, go to the nonfiction section and just pick out some books. And so they did this a couple times. And so I've been reading along nonfiction. A lot of them have fallen into this category of self-help. One of them I read just last month was actually by a Christian author. Had to happen to be a Christian author. And I was reading along, listening along in the car and it had a couple chapters on marriage. And so I was like, oh, this is some good stuff. So I was talking to my wife about this stuff. And she said, well, that book was out a couple years ago. Did you know that this year that author has actually gotten a divorce. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, I, like, I'm reading this book and like wondering, like, what is the real advice? Like, what's the take home stuff that will really help a life? Don't you wish? And as a pastor and a preacher, like sometimes I wish I could be more like specific. Here's what you need to do. Some of the men in here are just like, yeah, that's great. Your stories are cool, blah, 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 blah. But just tell me what I need to do. This sermon, this sermon series is Jesus telling us what we need to do. Are you leaned in? Are you ready to say amen? Amen. Okay, so here's what this sermon is. We started this series last week. We're we're kind of continuing the introduction today and getting into what we're going to talk about. We are going to talk about the Lord's Prayer because Jesus' disciples come to him and say, Jesus, just tell us 
How should we pray? And Jesus is like, okay, here it is. Here's some advice for you. Very specific what to do. And this has stood the test of time. 2,000 something years old. Has This prayer has stood the test of time. And this author of this prayer has stood the test of time. This author who we believe Jesus is, is fully God, letting us know his people how to pray. So let's lean in to the Lord's Prayer this morning. And if some of you are in here, maybe like me, you have a background with the Lord's Prayer. Maybe you came from a tradition, like a high church tradition, where they said the Lord's Prayer very often. And maybe for you, the Lord's Prayer is something you can just say, like as a ritual. You can say it and not even mean it, not even pray it. It's something you can and just say. I grew up in a high church tradition, very thankful for my Catholic upbringing as a little kid. My parents, my mom's here, my dad, I think, is he downstairs helping the kids? Uh, So he's downstairs volunteering right now, but uh, they raised us, me and my brother, Catholic. And so every week, and I mean every week, we went to church. I had perfect attendance. How many years? Something like 10 years, that's all, of perfect attendance. Well done, me. No, 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 no. I didn't get myself up. I didn't drive myself to church. Well done, mom and dad, for 10 years of perfect attendance. And so I grew up going to church. In Catholic church, you learn this prayer, and it can become something that you can just say without the heart. I know it, maybe some of you have that same idea in your mind that the Lord's Prayer is just something you say ritualistically and the real prayer happens when you're spontaneous. And so I'm going to maybe shift that a little bit this morning and throughout the series that this prayer is a great model prayer. It is the model prayer for the Christian life. Let me tell you a quick story. So uh, as a seven-year-old little boy, Catholic growing up, uh, you do something when you're seven years old. You do your first communion. And before your first communion, you do this little class. And so I did the whole class. Before the first communion, you do your first, anybody know? Confession. And so you go, if you don't, if you're not familiar, maybe you've seen it in movies, you go into a little box and the priest is in the other box and then a little door opens and says, and you say, uh, forgive me, father, for I've sinned. It's been so long since my last confession. That is really scary for a seven-year-old. So in my class, what they did was much easier. They had a little couch in a little chair, and so I sat down with the priest, who was a great guy, and he—he he, he, like I stumbled through, like it's—it's been, it's been my friend—I've never confessed. Here's my confession, and I just like talked to this priest, very nervous and shaking, and I remember confessing a whole list of things. Some of them were—I uh, remember too, like I was mean to my brother. I'm a seven-year-old. My brother was four, and I was always taking his toys and beating him up, and I felt bad about it. So I, I said, uh, "Forgive me for that." The other thing I remember was I was always talking back to my mom and not listening. So I confessed that. I was like, I'm always talking, I'm not listening to my mom. And so I confessed that. And then the priest said, okay, I'm going to lead you through some prayers and, and, and pray that Jesus will forgive us. His blood will forgive us. And yes, yes, as a seven-year-old, I understood that as best a seven-year-old could. And then he said, now is the time for penance. If you're truly sorry, you will do uh, an act of penance. And so he said, Go into the other room, and I want you to say the Our Father. I want you to say it 30 times. And I was like, as a seven-year-old, I was like, I need to go home and pack a lunch. Like 30 times? I'm going to be here all night. And so I was like, okay. So I go and did that, and I did it as quickly as I could. As a little seven-year-old, it took like 20 minutes. It didn't take all night. But that was like, that was my... Looking back, like that's my baggage with the Lord's Prayer. It was something I said very quickly just to get it over with. And over the years, as I've um, 
dedicated my life to Christ in high school. I guess rededicated and come into a saving knowledge of Jesus as a God with whom I can have a relationship. I have restudied the Lord's Prayer and I am restudying it for this series and falling in love all over again with the Lord's Prayer. Eugene Peterson says it this way, that he says we need to relearn the Lord's Prayer. We need to reimagine the Lord's Prayer. There's actually a lot to take in here when it comes to the Lord's Prayer. Because many of us, I think, come from a Protestant background where we just pray spontaneously. And maybe you've been given the advice. I think I've probably given the advice saying like, well, if you want to pray, just pray what's in your heart. Like just go before the God. Talk to God as if he's your best friend. And as I've heard this advice, I've probably given this advice. I remember receiving this advice when I was in high school, as someone who never prayed, like I had no reason to pray. Why would you pray? That's what other people do. That's what religious people do. I had no reason to pray. And my youth pastor was like, you need to pray. You need to have a relationship with the Lord. Pray to him as you would talk with a friend. And at the time, it was good advice in only so far. Because it could become bad advice if you really don't know who God is. And you begin to praying to a God that you've kind of created. Or you become praying prayers that are all like me, 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 and self-centered. A better advice would be to pray in the way that is modeled for us here by Jesus. Jesus tells us how to pray. So all that is introduction. Let us now stand for the reading of God's word, shall we? We're going to read from Luke 11. We're going to, this is a quick sentence about the preface to the Lord's Prayer. And then we're actually going to jump into the Matthew version of the Lord's Prayer. And we will say that together. But Luke 11, chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 1, I'll, I'll read it for us, says this, that just one day, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And, and so the, the context here is Jesus is out praying, and, and uh, one of the disciples amongst the group says, Jesus, would you teach us to pray? We can see that you are a person of prayer. John, we assume John the Baptist disciples taught his disciples how to pray. So would you teach us how to pray? And Jesus says this. He says to them, when you pray, say, and let's pray this together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. All right, you may be seated now. Let's talk through this prayer, shall we? Um, I'm going to ask the tech team if you guys could put up the, the graphic that we have. That You just saw the video. Is the, we call it the sermon bumper. This is the graphic for the bumper. And I want to brag on... Uh, uh, we'll get to that part in just a second. So, uh, so I want to brag on our New Life uh, creative team that came up with this graphic. Can you? Does anybody see what is here? Does anyone else see uh, like praying? Does anyone else see praying hands? You see that? I didn't see that right at first, and then I saw it, and I was like, "Oh, this is really cool." So I emailed the director of our creative department. His name is Aaron Olson, and I said, "Tell me about this. It's it's not just stock art. This is something that New Life has made," and he. He went on and on telling me, well, there's a lot of symbolism here. 
Uh, the shapes are all different from one another, and there are how many of them? Seven of them. And there's seven parts of the Lord's Prayer. And so each part here is represented by one of these shapes, and they're each different from one another. And uh, they're all just very simple geometric shapes. And the, the, the thought there is that prayer is simple, and it doesn't need to be this complex thing. And yet you have something complex made by these simple parts. And then there's the, uh, I didn't, uh, at the bottom there is a, uh, uh, a shape that kind of looks like an envelope. Does anyone else see this? Yes. You see like an envelope? And so I, I, Aaron didn't say this, but I'm looking at this being like, oh, this is to symbolize like message going back and forth. Like the prayer isn't this just ritualistic thing that we say, but it is in fact communication with God. And it's all uh, around a circle because we are meant to pray in secret. Jesus, we'll talk about this another week where Jesus prefaces how to pray with it all being in secret, do in secret uh, uh, to the Lord instead of making a big show out of prayer. So here's the seven parts and we'll get in a minute to what those seven parts are. But the first point in this sermon, so I have usually how many points in my sermons? No, three, always three, except sometimes. I do, sometimes there's two. If you were here last time, we did a two. It's like, you always do two. No, three, I almost always do three. So the first point in this sermon is still kind of an introduction to the point that the Lord's Prayer summarizes Jesus' kingdom message. The Lord's Prayer summarizes Jesus' kingdom message. And there's something to be said here about um, this summarization, this chant that is the Lord's Prayer, this uh, manifesto that is the Lord's Prayer, this slogan that is the Lord's Prayer, this summary of, in some ways, a revolution that Jesus started with the Lord's Prayer. It's, it, is, it is the Lord's Prayer. It is a prayer but it is so much more and that encapsulates all of Jesus' teaching. So I have, I'm gonna ask the tech team, we might be having some technical issues. We're good, he's got the thumbs up, Dan the man. That's his name, Dan Glass. Um, so we're, I'm gonna play for you a song. We're gonna do kind of something fun here. Uh, you've already got a little teaser of that song. So we'll play a, just a little bit of the song. And in some ways, I'm gonna compare this to the Lord's Prayer. This is a sermon illustration that's not mine. I'm stealing it from a guy named Tim Mackey, who uh, he's the, maybe some of you know him from the Bible Project on YouTube. So if you go to YouTube and you wanna learn like a whole bunch in 10 minutes about a whole book of the Bible, watch some of Tim Mackey's videos, uh, the Bible project. It's wonderful. But he, he said this, that this uh, prayer that Jesus prays is somewhat like this song because this song that you're about to hear represents uh, in the 1960s, a revolution, a movement that happened. So here's the song. We'll play it now. Go ahead and play it, Dan. Do you know the song? Nod your head if you, if you know. You, you know the song. How many of you will play that um, that game you play at weddings where like the first table to know the song gets to go eat first. Who, does anybody know the name of this song? Anybody? John? It's, yeah, yeah, some of the lines. No one knows that name. Okay, you can stop the song, Dan. It's called uh, For What It's Worth and it's by Stephen Stills, who became a band member of Crosby, Stills, uh, Nash & Young. And he wrote the song 
um, about like there was this uh, like a just like a curfew in LA on Sunset Boulevard for like bars and taverns and and bands like his band didn't like that there was a curfew. So he wrote the song because of that, um, which which is just kind of interesting piece of fact uh, about the song. But then the song in 1966, it was written, becomes this song for the countercultural movement. I wasn't there myself, but some of you may have been there. And, And a lot of people still to this day think that the song has been written about uh, like the Kent State shootings, that the riot that happened there, and then the police came in. There was shootings, and some people say that, that this song is written about that. But it's that 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 thing that happened at Kent State that was 1970. This song was 1966. But what I'm saying here, the point here is this: that this song maybe accidentally, for whatever it's worth, becomes the song of the movement. And it encapsulates in some way. I mean, there's some one-liners in here. Uh, Nobody's right if everybody's wrong. Mostly say hooray for our side. Singing songs, carrying signs. Like these one-liners in the song become this like memento, become this manifesto for this movement. And, And it's weird to compare this song to the Lord's Prayer. Forgive me. But Jesus, I think, knows full well what he's doing when he says this prayer, which uh, last week Brett said, it takes about 30 seconds to pray. I could pray it a lot quicker than that, Brett. Um, (laughs) As a little Catholic boy, I got really good uh, at praying it quicker than 30 seconds. But in 30 seconds, let's just say, Jesus presents to us this prayer, which I am going to say, copying the words of Tim Mackey, there is no better summary of the mission and movement of Jesus than this prayer. There is no better summary of the mission and movement of Jesus than this prayer, which is seven parts Jesus encompasses, he uh, uh, emblematically states what he and his mission, his kingdom is all about. So if we can, tech team, if you, I'm calling on you guys a lot today. Could you put back on the slide of, of so these are the seven parts. Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Here's the seven parts, and we'll get to the first part today. So here's seven fingers, seven parts. Uh, the first one is our Father who is in heaven. And then next week, we'll talk about hallowed, holy is your name. And then your kingdom come, the third one, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's all one part. Like your will be done, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Number four is give us today, our daily bread. And number five would be forgive us, Lord, our debts or our trespasses. And then he adds in this, as we forgive others who debt or trespass against us. Number six is then lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or the evil one. We'll talk that uh, a couple weeks about that. And then number seven is kind of this continuation, uh, this liturgical potentially add on, maybe it was sung, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So today we are going to be looking at just the first phrase of the Lord's prayer. Um, Our father who art in heaven, and, and we'll break it down even further. And first just talk about our father. So point number two, if you're writing down notes for today in this sermon, point number two is Jesus prays with us our Father. And I want to get this point across that that it's Jesus praying with us and teaching us how to pray. And he begins with our Father. 
In the Greek, it's pater, that means father, amon, like belonging to us. And I hope you're very proud of your pastor who knows two words in the Greek, right? Very impressive, right? So I, 20 years, it's literally like 20 years ago now, I took three semesters of New Testament Greek in seminary, at Fuller Seminary. And I was like, wow, this is great. And I, 20 years ago, I knew so much Greek. I was spouting off this and that, could parse uh, verbs and all this. And then some time passed. And I was like, man, I have forgotten everything. So after some, after I graduated, I was like, I'm going to go back and audit a course. Has anybody ever audited a course? Anybody at all? It is a great feeling because you're in this class like a Superman because you're not in there to get graded. So you could do whatever you want. You're just here to learn. Everyone else is stressing out about the tests. And, and I'm just like, I'm just in here to learn. I'm here. I'm hanging out. And so the class had to memorize all of the Lord's Prayer in Greek. And that was very, it was very hard to do. And, and they, had, they had to say it in front of the whole class and get graded on how accurate they were. It sounds like a nightmare, right? Well, I was auditing the class, so I didn't have to do it. I was like, oh, this is the, I don't have to do that part. I don't have to stand in front of the class. I don't have to rehearse something in another language. I just get to sit in class. But I'm very sorry to say, to you all right now that I should have put the time in and memorized it in Greek, but at least I got the first two words, pater amon, which means father who belongs to us, our father. So this our word is pretty beautiful. That The fact that Jesus prays and then teaches us to pray. He doesn't say like you, when you pray, pray my father, but he says, when you pray, pray our Father, and I had this uh, maybe epiphany or just a beautiful thought that this earlier this week, I wake up early and pray every morning, and I was praying the Lord's Prayer, and I just thought, I just opened up with Our Father, and it was like, oh, the Lord Jesus is, is with me praying to the Father, and Jesus and God the Father, they are one. We hold this to be true, the hypostatic union, if you want to get theological about it, that Jesus the Son and God the Father are one in being. But here, Jesus teaches us to pray, saying, our Father. And Jesus was caught many times praying to the Lord. In fact, every single time, minus one, I'll tell you what uh, the exception is in a moment, but every time, every time in the New Testament, when Jesus prays and he addresses God, it is to Father. He addresses God as Father. And I think we kind of take that for granted, at least I do, in, in the world, in the Christian world that I live in. That's just how you address God. You call him your Father. But in the Jewish world, in this first century, to call God your Father would be, to them, might be like disrespect. Like, where's the respect? Blasphemy. Like, why would you refer to God as your own Father? In the Old Testament, when people referred to God, they called God uh, Yahweh, uh, El, um, they called the names of God. They would say God, uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Moses. They would say the God of Israel. They would refer to God never. Like, they wouldn't would call him father, Jesus comes along and calls God himself father, which I think we take that for granted. But back then, like, this is huge. Jesus referring personally to a God who deeply loves us, to a God who, who like, he, Jesus invites us to pray to this God that isn't just a spiritual exercise, but a personalization of talking to God himself, communicating, having a personal relationship with God. So Jesus prays with us, 
our Father, a very personal God. Point number three is this. This is the last point. So we're um, already moving and grooving into this sermon. Point number three, our Father in heaven is not far off. And this, I think um, we have this idea of heaven. And it's, it's for some of us, for, for maybe the secular world around us, heaven is this far off distant place. We as Christians do not hold to deism, but deism is a pretty popular idea, I think, in our secular culture. If you don't know what it is, the gist of it is that like God is a standoff God, that he maybe started the world, the, the famous... Um, analogy or metaphor is that he wound up the world like a clock and then he set the clock down and, and God's, he's got better things to do. He's off in another world. He's off in like Narnia doing other stuff and he's left us in this world to, to be by itself. That's called deism. That is not what we believe. We believe that God is very close to us. We believe that heaven and earth are like running parallel, that, that heaven isn't you know, so we, we know a lot about earth, but, but, but when it comes to heaven, things get fuzzy. Like earth is like where we're at right now. Like we're breathing in, we're on earth. And even if we leave earth and go to the moon, we're still a part of like the world. Like, well, like that, we know all about the world. But when heaven comes into being explained in the Bible, things get fuzzy as to like where it is. Uh, people in our day and age talk about like dimensions and time and people in the Bible talked about like gold and thrones and cherubim and angels and singing and the the book of Revelation talks about uh, peals of thunder and lightning and lights and brightness and things people were wearing and it's like where is this heaven place? I, I know earth, I get that, but where, when is heaven? And there is uh, what I want to say, like, a, like it is not far off. Here's a couple different ways to explain it. So I have uh, spent all morning on this drawing. Do you like my art? Uh, two dots on a paper. One's heaven, one's earth. And maybe you've seen this before. I've seen this in science classes when someone's trying to explain like how a black hole works or something. So I'm gonna try to explain. Maybe you already know what's coming. Uh, how heaven and earth work. So one's heaven, uh, one's earth. And they seem very far apart unless you fold it in. And then it's like, oh, now they're, they're like right on top of each other. And this is kind of helpful for thinking about like, if, if heaven is, you know, we might use the word dimension. If it's another dimension, well, maybe that dimension is actually much, much closer than we think. We shouldn't talk about heaven as being like some far off place. It's actually here and now. In fact, the, the words later in this prayer is heaven, you know, things on heaven uh, happen on earth as it is in heaven. That this earth would, would be parallel to the things of heaven. Another example of um, kind of this metaphor, maybe you've heard of this as well. It's a, by a guy named Edwin Abbott who lived in the 1800s, an Anglican like school master, school teacher. And he wrote this little book, a little novella, really an essay uh, called The Flatlands. Have you heard of this? And it's like as if, he, he writes uh, as if uh, people are living in two dimensions. So if you're living in two dimensions, you have heights and you have width. So you're like, like this, like you could look across and you would just see lines over there and you could look maybe this way and down and all you would see is like two dimensions, up and down and right and left, right? So you li- you're living in like two dimensions, you could do like the two dimension <laughs> dance um, and you would have no idea of, of, of the other space 
because you live in a two-dimensional world. This is what this guy, this guy proposed. It's like, what if, you know, life is like this where we just live in two dimensions and you have no perception of this distance, but sometimes like God is right next to us. And, and we don't know it. We, can, we would maybe talk about like, oh, I sense God or the presence or you talk about the hope we have that God is near to us and you would have no idea, you would have no scientific way to like see it or to explain it. You would just feel it and kind of know it and hope it. And so I think this, that analogy for me is helpful because when we pray, we pray to our, our Father who is in heaven and this hopefully is just a reminder to us that heaven is very, very near. As I summarize this, this morning, I'll invite the band to come up now. To, they're going to lead us in a few moments to, to sing another song. Um, <clears throat> but I told you I would give you that exception. of So Jesus always, whenever we have Jesus praying, uh, he, when he addresses God, he always addresses God as Father. And, and yet there's this one exception, and maybe, maybe you know what it is, um, but it's when he's on the cross. And there's seven things Jesus says on the cross. There's that number again. There's something about that number. There's seven things Jesus, seven phrases he says on the cross. And the first one is, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. The people are gambling his clothes away. People are nailing him to the cross. And he has the, this pause, this wherewithal, to pray to God the Father and say, forgive them. They had no idea that they are killing God right now. Uh, and so he asked for their forgiveness. And then he says some more things. The last thing Jesus says is, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That's the last thing Jesus says on the cross. So it's preceded and ended with Father. So Jesus is praying to the Father. But in the middle of those things he says on the cross, what does he say? He says, Psalm 22. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this psalm, if you go on to read it, it's a, it's a heart-wrenching psalm. Why are you so far from saving me? To you I cry out by day, and I feel like you don't listen. By night, and I have no rest. Yet you, Lord, are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. To you we cried out, and you have come to us, and you will save us. But it's this heart-wrenching psalm that Jesus, he prays at least the first phrase of it on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And theologians throughout the years have given different analogies of like, what is that? What is that like? And and many theologians have come to an understanding like that's kind of like God the Father turning his back on the Son. It's like, well, why would he do that? Why? Why? Well, because Jesus at that moment was carrying the weight of sin of the world upon himself and I heard one theologian say it this way. He said, God turns his back, God the Father turns his back on the Son so that he can open his arms and turn lovingly to his creation and accept it as flawless and sinless because of the work he does. And so that's where I started this sermon saying like, this is all, you know, this is kind of like a self-help thing. Well, now I kind of go back and I, I retract those words and say, no, 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 this isn't a self-help. We don't save ourselves. We don't help ourselves, but rather we receive help from the Father who saves us. We receive his work on the cross. And one of the areas that, that uh, going to this analogy of heaven and earth meeting, like we're, we're in some sort of two dimension, one of the areas where it seems like 
it, the heaven and earth gets very thin is when we pray, when we pray. And Jesus tells us how to pray. Another area that we're about to do where it seems like heaven and earth get very thin is the sacraments. Last, last week, we were uh, thrilled to baptize four people. And for those people getting baptized, it seemed like you know this, this, this metaphor that heaven and earth were at that moment very thin, very close together. And today, we are going to be led in communion. We're going to receive communion together, an open table for all those that believe in Jesus. So if you would, would you stand with me on your way to standing there in your baskets? You can get the communion elements and then Brett will lead us.